Welcome to the Spiritual Phoenix Podcast. I'm your host, Ross Cessna, and I bring you, the Phoenix Family, a weekly podcast about alchemy, spirituality, magic, mysticism, and more. The Spiritual Phoenix Podcast is fan-funded, and you can contribute with the link in the show notes. Other ways to show your support include subscribing to our YouTube channel, leaving us excellent reviews wherever possible, engaging with our content on social media, shooting me an email, and sending an audio message through the Anchor app. This is a community podcast. I'm just the humble host. Let's start the show. All right. Welcome, everybody. We are joined by Ben Vonderheed. Ben, how are you doing? Very well. Um, so one of the preliminary questions I like to ask people before we kind of get into the interview is, what are you grateful for today? Oh, man, I'll tell you, I've got more to be grateful for than most. So it's a, it's a strong, powerful list. I'm grateful today, certainly for my son being here with me working on this mission. Awesome. Yeah, family is definitely important. Uh, so it's a beautiful thing. It certainly is. It's something I've took for granted at parts of my life, but now it's something I'm beginning to appreciate on a deeper level. Um, so could you explain to the people who you are and what your, the work is that you are doing? Yeah, my name is uh, Bennett J. Vonderheide, and tonight I'm here with you in reference to my work with the Nomali sacred stones unearthed in uh, stone figurines, carved figurines unearthed in West Africa. And um, on a mission really to, to as you uh, understand more than most with your podcast, I uh, found something very interesting, intriguing, enigmatic. And surprisingly found that there were very few, almost no one who knew about it. I had anticipated and just essentially assumed that they were widely known of. And now that I've found that they are not, it's, uh, it's you kind of take on a responsibility to get the word out of anything you find that is really powerful, cool, and seems to be destined for greater things and to help people. Absolutely. Um, that sounds like a very worthy cause. How did you come about this, uh, about the Nomali Stones? Well, I had a friend of mine who was a diamond guy in West Africa. And when I say diamond guy, similar to, although not the dramatic version, but the real life version of the role that Leonardo DiCaprio played in the movie Blood Diamonds, where this man went into the bush and acquired diamonds and brought them out of the country. He also worked with the United States intelligence community in an active role in West Africa. And at one point in time, years ago, a couple points, there was an attempt to recruit me into getting involved in those activities. I was minimally involved and only on, in the domestic uh, capacity. And, but we became good friends, me and one of the individuals who had approached me was Bill Diamonds. And we became good friends, and over the years, um, you know, he connected me, and I eventually acquired the stones from him and his and or his connections in the bush. Okay, um, so can you explain a little bit about what the Nomali stones are? Yeah, the Nomali stones are interesting in that they are very much unknown, as we mentioned, but they're, they're known. They've been documented for quite some time in numerous publications. 
there's still quite a bit that's unknown and more that we're finding out. So if I just follow it in that order, how we know they're unknown for the last year plus my son is 20 years old and he's uh, very apt in the world of social media and has been doing an outreach in preparation for the book we're writing and the documentary which will uh, follow and has been putting query out to ask amongst specific groups that would be the those interested whether it be those in, interested in ancient alien theories ancient civilization healing shamanism uh, psychic works stones uh, of course are used in many of these areas and he began to do an outreach and he asked can anyone tell us if you know anything about these stones if you've ever utilized them in your modality your healing discipline if you will and we were surprised i mean we got good results we have 5,000 friends on facebook and a lot of people following and commenting on them on how interesting they were when we posted the various components uh, of this of the collection and or components of the story which we've rediscovered if you will but not one person had ever heard of or used Nomali stones. We took them to the gem show up outside of New York City and put them in a booth of a friend of mine. So put a couple out there. And again, thousands of people went by, aficionados and, and those who are enthusiasts in the area of stones and crystals and healing. And three people had heard of them, but only they were African art people and they'd heard them because of the African art uh, element of the Nomoli stones. We then took them to MUFON, Mutual UFO Network, anticipating that those people who were foremost in the UFO areas, because I'll tell you shortly how they connect to that ancient alien theories. And we found again, not one person, that with the exception of one, Bill Burns, uh, Bill Burns is a gentleman who started this show, UFO Hunters, and starred on it years ago. He was the keynote speaker, and I asked him to come look at him. He looked at him, and he said he had never seen or heard of the stones, but he had once heard of Nomali deities. And so this was amazing to me that um, no one was aware of him. So uh, they're very much unknown. And uh, again, my son's outreach according to the numbers they say, are members of these groups reached in front of hundreds of thousands, indeed possibly a million or more viewers over the last year in very different in different groups and different type of social media. And um, so very much unknown. Now they are known though. In fact, they first were known by the outside world in the 1400s, the Portuguese sailors ran across them and first published in 1854 uh, New York there's a uh, Thompson Thompson in a Thompson in Africa was the book 1854 uh, there were more writings of about them at the turn of the century in the early 1900s and uh, interesting work by gentleman 1917 and then you can go on to Thor Heyerdahl. Are you familiar with Thor Heyerdahl and the Contiki, by chance? The name sounds familiar, but I can't think of anything um, off the top of the head. Maybe it's just come up in conversation before. Well, if you take a minute, and I'll, I'll remind your audience may be familiar, but it's not. It's certainly worth taking a review of. The Contiki is the name of the book and documentary and subsequent movie 
Stuart Heyerdahl was a gentleman who came to the conclusion after visiting indigenous tribes and hearing of their folklore and and being educated and knowledgeable in matters related, he determined that he felt that the Peruvians had first sailed and uh, discovered Polynesia and inhabited it. At that time in 1940s, it was well known throughout the communities and the scholars that the Orientals had settled and first found Polynesia. And they considered it ludicrous to think that the uh, people who lived in Peru who were not uh, that advanced could have possibly done this. So Thor gets this idea that he's going to, well, somebody puts it in his head, says, well, why don't you build a raft and, and take the trip? So he and a number, a couple other guys, uh, WW2 vets, get on this. They build it exactly as it would have been built 1,500 years before, using cypress logs, and they build a raft. And they man this raft, and they sail off of Peru, and 101 days later, they land in Polynesia, proving more that, than that Peru settled Polynesia, which was a very big, uh, very large point of pride for Peru, of course. But, as he stated, that the ancients saw the highways as a thoroughfare, not as an impedance, as we would like to sometimes perceive that they would have been frightened of. No, they, they saw it as a, a way to get from here to there, and they may have been sailing a lot farther than we consider. So Thor Heyerdahl also mounted, or manned, and uh, funded and put together the first ever expedition of Easter Island. And when he did the expedition, he noted in his writings from 1957, I think it was by then, that Easter Island, the, the, the Nomoli stones of West Africa had the closest resemblance to the Easter Island stones, uh, which was found in secret caves. These are smaller stones. Every, your re listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with the large Easter Island stones which are found throughout the island. There were very, very many fewer, uh, very, very uh, much more uh, limited uh, collection or supply of very small figurines which were located in secret caves. And he said that the Nomali resembled those more than other stones from Africa and made a point of other places he'd seen, particularly the ones with the holes in their head in the top of their head, which were used for ceremonial purposes. So 1957, and uh, um, so then at the turn of the century again in 1990, in the 1990s, you have a television show called uh, Unexplained Mysteries. Unexplained Mysteries, Unsolved Mysteries, that's right. Mm. Unsolved Mysteries. And Unsolved Mysteries was, um, Unsolved Mysteries over to Sky Stone. Let me get to that. Unsolved Mysteries was a TV show, and in the 1990s, they, I, they did a story on the Sky Stones. The Sky Stones were blue stones found in soil that was dated to 12,000 BC. They were found near Nomoli. And it, the way they were found was interesting. This uh, Angelo Bertoni was the guy who found them, and he was there talking to the shamans and he said hey he says you guys say 
Well, let me back up. This is the time I should probably cover this. According to the natives, Nomoli were gods who lived in the heaven, and they misbehaved. As punishment for misbehaving, they were turned to stone, and they, along with the heavens they lived in, were turned to stone, and rained down upon the earth, and thereafter lived with the humans, who they helped and blessed when they were here with them. And that's the connection to the ancient alien theory, which we'll get into. Uh, so they found these, with, and the native said to him that this was the, the legend. And he said, well, if the sky fell down, then certainly you know you would have the sky here. And they said, oh, yes, the sky fell down, and we know right where it's at. And they took him to where he found the blue stone. The blue stones were filled with iridium, they, um, which is, they're often found, well, the, the iridium, and they also had some uh, items that would not, could not be identified. Um, so anyway, he found the blue stones, and along with that, he found a nomoli. In that nomoli, he felt there was a vibration. So he had an x-ray. They found a ball which had a metal ball bearing, which had chromium in it. Even though this was, again, been found in the Blue Stone area in strata that was identified as 12,000 BC, and chromium had not been used for uh, obviously a long time thereafter. It was uh, a gentleman by the name of uh, Klaus, Klaus Donner, Dorner. Dorna. Klaus, who was a guy who checked him out and uh, wrote about him. Um, and uh, so, again, now you're in the 1990s and there's still, there's uh, stories being told about him. There's a couple other quotes in some magazines and some periodicals. But So what I'm saying is that in a very unusual and enigmatic way, somehow they're completely unknown, but they are known. They've been written about. They've been collected. They were collected in, in the book by Edwin in 1917. He refers to the fact that there were already rumors that they were being manufactured in a foreign country and brought to Africa to be sold as the real relics because they were collected at the time. 1925 and 6, I believe it was, there was a imperialism show, if you will, in Wembley, England, and uh, 50 some out of the countries of Africa, which were uh, with Britain at the time, had exhibitions. And in the Sierra Leone exhibition, they gave out small one inch, what they had little written on the front of it was no more. So very popular, uh, the British royalty has collected them. There are examples of them in the Bronx Museum, in the British museums and other museums around the world but still remain unknown. Oh, wow. I, I have a couple of questions then. So one of the things that you're saying is there's kind of an awareness of them, but they're on like the peripheral of the consciousness of our culture where people are aware of them, but very few in number um, and not a lot is known about them, which I find compelling. And then secondly, you had mentioned the chromium. Chromium is a man-made uh, thing, correct? It has to be uh, constructed by a process. It's not something that's naturally occurring. Correct. That's my understanding. Okay. Yeah, that's that's really compelling. Um, so they're un unknown for because they've been suppressed purposefully. 
Okay. Um, do you want to get into that? Like, where do you want to take this next? Because I'm all ears just kind of digesting what you're saying. Yeah, the, the normally stones have been suppressed for one reason, because they're found buried in the jungle. They're randomly buried, unlike other stones. And, uh, you know, to describe them to, to your audience, they're often made out of soapstone. They're carved. They are figures which are representative of the Nomali gods, some of them, many of them. And they are said by the natives to have been created by the Nomali gods and handed down to the natives uh, at the beginning of man. And they are... Again, some are in the image, and you can, they can see them on ancientalienstones.com is our website. And on there, there's a video that says Vanderhyde Collection at the Museum. And so we have a video of the professor of African art from Howard University and the museum curator speaking, or the museum, excuse me, director speaking about these stones and showing them. And you can see a lot of the stones. So again, to describe them for your audience, they are... Oftentimes, anywhere from five inches, they can be much larger, but quite often five to ten inches. And um, they can look like the Nomali gods themselves. Other times, they can be a combination of a Nomali god with an infused into a human, often a representative of a chief, because the, uh, the installment of a chief would often involve using a Nomali stone and having a ceremony which the purpose of was to instill in skin within the chief the values you would want a chief to have, from bravery to kindness to good luck, you know, good fortune, prosperity, uh, honesty, integrity, the things you would want a, any leader to have. And then there are some that are more humanoid altogether, that are really just images of humans. But those also oftentimes, have a message, a moralistic message, oftentimes as a mother with a child, just impressing again the importance of nurturing children, of a loving relationship between a family, and of the, that the, the whole village should recognize the importance of these things. Hmm. And also they, of course, would have the blessing to protect the mother and the child or the whole village. They would be for different purposes. Oh, and then I'll get to the last uh, category, if you will, classification. They would be for different purposes, for fertility, for healing, for, uh, again, many different specific and broad purposes. Then the final ones I would say we have very few of, but that we've come across over the years, are the ones which are consistent with ancient alien stones, or stones which which inspire ancient alien theorists to review them and come up with uh, ideas of past connections and contacts. And that they, one might, one of them has the uh, features which are often identified with the insect type of image of an alien visitors. Others are elongated heads and um, some reptilian, particularly the reptilian parts. So those are the basic classifications. They were found in these countries. They were dug up, unlike other stones or the parts of the world, not at shrines or altars or temples, not at burial sites. 
just randomly buried in the jungle. One of the theories being that they are intermediaries between the ancestors and the Mali gods and the living humans when you bury one. Some are not, some are kept, they've always been kept at the center of the village and used for ceremonies for the entire village to benefit. Wow, that's, that's pretty fascinating because it breaks kind of contemporary understanding of how a lot of ritualistic things are used if they're seemingly placed kind of randomly. Wow, that's kind of a trip to even, even in itself without all these other compelling aspects to it. I find that really neat. Um, in regards to kind of the draconian or insect uh, looking ones, my question would be this. Um, although it may be hard to get information, what, what is your personal feeling of those? Are those more guardian types or are they more um, sinister in what they represent? Because to me, like intuition would say guardian, but I don't have any information about it. So, Yeah, I would like to say, you know, I'm a stone whisperer and I get the readings from the stones and can define them all. I'm the, I am the steward of these stones. And when I hold them and when I utilize them for myself and when I've seen other people utilize them, I've been uh, profoundly impacted and uh, lives have been profoundly impacted. I can't define each one. And one of the things that me and my son are doing is, is uh, contacting those who can, those who are psychics, those who are involved with uh, other ways of communicating that will be able to read the stones. And we've already done some, and it's very interesting and, and just amazing the results we get from handing them to people. So I guess the answer would be that I could say this, is that I've never seen to date, and, and I would preface this by saying this, you know, it's the instructions I, the instructions I have gotten from the Bush are, you do not allow children to hold the stones you are best not to allow people who are in perhaps unstable and uh, you know, not solid foundation to get involved. But that being said, I've never seen anyone have anything but positive results from the stones. The only thing I could say that is anything that's somewhat at all at first shocks you is I've seen people who hold a stone and they will jolt back into like they just got a shock. And then they will, their eyes will roll up or so, and uh, they'll look like they're, uh, at first at least, not real, you know, in a state of serenity. But at each event when they're done, they felt very positive, which just at first was overwhelming shock to those individuals. So. You know, what I'm saying is you hold them with reverence because they have, they have power. Um, so, you know, it's not anything to, to willy-nilly around with. People from the country, such as the professor, will maybe only hold one at any particular day. Um, so uh, if that answers your question, I, can't, I can say what some of them were designed for because in certain cases we have information from the bush, what they were designed, how they were used. Other cases, we have information again from the professor because he was born in Ghana, raised in Ghana, and is a, just a genius and one of the world's foremost experts in these matters. So he can tell us culturally and also from an uh, art perspective what the symbols sometimes mean now translated into current and past 
West African art, which might be translated into wood and other modes, other methods rather, of uh, other uh, substances that they use to do art. But inevitably it could be the same image that was born out of the Nomali, which has been handed down was the inspiration. Oh, wow. Yeah, that definitely answers my question in a sense that there's not enough information, but all the experiences have been relatively um, positive with the exception of maybe some kind of overwhelming uh, reaction at the beginning to the experience. At yeah, this MUFON, time, we had a, a MUFON, we had a woman come up on a scooter, very mm -hmm. nice woman, very sensitive. She's a reader. She reads past lives. And she got <clears throat> about 10 feet away from the one stone with a mother holding a child. And she started to weep. And she said, I just can't take this right now. It's too much. She said, thank you for bringing these stones. This is such a gift. And then she came back an hour later and was able to get closer to it and, and said it was just overwhelming, the, the power of the stone and what it did to her. But, and again, and I guess tears of joy or tears of overwhelming, but not in a bad way because she came back and was able to then slowly approach the stone. She never did touch it. She didn't feel she needed to do that, but just was uh, very, very profoundly again impacted by it. So at the same show, uh, Steve uh, Baxter came by with uh, his two healers that he was with, and he was seemed lethargic and uh, not not alert fully, and almost as they were leading him, and they asked if they could hold the twin stone, and I said certainly, and they sat in the back behind the uh, table next to the booth and. He sat down and all of a sudden you could just feel something. It was very interesting and they just seemed, that area just seemed to light up. Lights flickering over here right now. But anyways, that area just seemed to light up and, uh, and he had what he defined as a, an experience, what he defined as a healing. And I can say for sure that when he came back, he seemed to be just awake and alert and uh, his eyes bright and very int interesting and powerful. So we're just kind of wandering around, figuring it out as we go. Yeah, understandable. That's sometimes what you have to do, especially with something like that, I would imagine. At this time, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll come back with the second half of the show. Um, ben, thanks so much for the first half. I'm looking forward to seeing what is uncovered in the next half. Are you facing questions with no answers or seeking an escape from persistent problems? Then enlist the Oracle at Mushin. The Oracle at Mushin provides high quality tarot and life coaching services at affordable prices. Quickly and easily book online with the link in our description. Our listeners get a 10% discount off the Oracle at Mushin's already low prices. Use code OFF10. That's OFF10. Seek the solution today. All right, welcome everybody. We are back for round two with Ben Vonderheide and the Nomali Stones. So Ben, the floor is yours, man. Let's see what you want to get into next. So we were talking about the stones. I guess it's worth mentioning that the reason why they're suppressed, how can they be so unknown? 
And the answer to that is, is uh, pretty much every way they could be suppressed. You start off with the fact that, as the professor would say, they were, dug, they were buried in the ground. So unknown, nothing written about them, first uh, uncovered again by the Portuguese in the 1400s. But mostly uh, it would be the religious end of the equation in that the West Africa is strongly Muslimized, uh, radical Muslims in many cases, and often radical Christians, well, missionaries will be in the area. These individuals religiously will destroy stones like this and are radically interested in destroying any beliefs that the natives might have of their traditions and any practices which could still be actively continued at this point in time. Socially, there, well, politically in these countries, there's not really a separation between church and state. If you want to be successful in politics and or business, it's likely best that you at least be a Muslim. As many, as some people I've met, uh, a Muslim at least when you're in West Africa. When you come to America, you might not have to be a Muslim anymore. You can drink and do what you want. But when you're there, it's very wise to be a Muslim. And so, again, they'll destroy them. You've got that. The other thing which is unique in this area, which... I like to relate it to the Native Americans to show the contrast. The Native American artifacts now are very revered by many people. There are those who use them, study them, they trade in them, they are sold for high values, and they are sought after. If you find an ancient, uh, an old ancient Native American stone carving, you've found a relic that's highly desirable, well-recognized. But, in Africa, the, the culture is different. The, the, there's a, a huge desire to not be viewed as uncivilized and primitive. Hmm. And there is a lack of recognition of the value of the traditional religious beliefs because they are viewed as primitive and uncivilized. So while here again you have those like myself who go to powwows for many years, more people go as time proceeds. In Africa, even the current people in power are very much opposed to being viewed as connected to things like these stones. In fact, when in writing, working on collaboration with the book with the professor, Kwakua Foyanza, he had me reach, do an outreach to various college and university professors in the African departments and often African studies professors. And unfortunately, none of them are interested in getting involved in collaborating and researching and providing knowledge or, or even knowing about these studies, which is unfortunate. But that's a, a key factor in why they have been suppressed uh, around the world. The next thing I think I want to talk about is the, the Dogon connection. This is very interesting. Myself and my son have been researching any number of things, as we've told you, some of the uh, literature we've identified, publications, etc. I did a, after the MUFON show, even though no one had ever heard of him, there was one gentleman, um, uh, reality radio? 
Nature of, Nature of Reality Radio, Andrew Fisher, nice guy. And he stopped by and he said, hey, would you do a podcast? And I said, well, I'm 60 years old almost, what's a podcast? <laughs> and he said, he said, well, you just sit home and I talk to you on the phone. And I said, sure. So I did the podcast and in the podcast, there were people online commenting, and one of them commented because Andrew asked me about the, the Dogon. And I told him I'm familiar somewhat with the Dogon, but I'm not an expert in Dogon. And he said, do you know the connection is, you know, the Nomali? And I said, there's never, I know, been any connection between the Nomali and the Dogon. And someone posted that the, the Dogon were visited by the Nomos, fish-like gods, who imparted the wisdom of the Sirius B. Uh, your viewers are probably familiar with the Dogon. You're familiar with the Dogon. Yeah, I've heard of them, definitely. I researched that thread at one point in my life. Yes, and, and the key ingredient with them, or the key factor, is key features that they identified Sirius B long before science did. Mm -hmm. And they have drawings of it and they believe that this is where they came, where mankind came from. And so this podcast commenter said that the Dogon were visited by the Nomos. And we looked into it and we said, well, fish-like beings, not really, uh, normally are not fish-like beings. But then we looked it up and actually the more correct uh, definition would be amphibious beings. Um, and then it occurred to me that I remember from the bush hearing that why the crocodiles are revered is they are connected to the nomoli, that we have stones, such as one we have in the crocodile is infused up the back of the, the figure, the nomoli figure, in, where the head of the crocodile looks like a hat or a mohawk. Mm. And so we, and I had heard from the bush that they revered the crocodile because it could live on the land and in the water. The amphibious, same definition. Then my son looked it up and he, we identified that these come from Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Guinea only, these normally. And that borders on Mali, where the Dogon come from. And we looked into the Mali Empire, which was back in the 1300s AD. And we noticed that at that point in time, the, the Mali Empire actually entered into Guinea and into Sierra Leone, touched upon Liberia. And we came to think, well, if they would be the nomos of Mali, then it would stand to reason over time that that could be shortened to nomoli. Mm. And so we, tie, we rediscovered now, upon further research, we found that in 1950, Jean-Paul Labouf and Mason de Torbay, excuse me if I got that right, in A la Civilisation de Chad, in 1950, they wrote, Nomali have apparently been found in the Dogon area of Mali, 600 miles away. So, and then in... 2008 in the Toronto Magazine Ufological Center says, note the resemblance between the term nomolo with the name nomo. So there were others who have at least considered that connection. That then of course led us to the connection with ancient Egypt because the Dogon had been genealogically connected to ancient Egypt. Dogon civilization said to be 3200 BC is the date, and the ancient Egyptian civilization dates to 3100 BC. 
and this led us into the the where I wasn't aware there was such an argument into the argument which now the Nomoli are playing a part in is were there ancient civilizations well let me put it this way there are some including scholars and many in other parts of Africa who do not believe that the first pyramids ever built were of that size and were built in Egypt. That prior to that, there were civilizations which rose and fall, were, rose and fell, which had developed the technology and the building capacity and had built perhaps smaller pyramids at first, because that would make sense. And that they had actually migrated to Egypt. This is the longstanding belief of those in West Africa. When I speak to those deep in the bush, they would tell me that they have been there 10,000 years. Some would say they've been there 30,000 years. And, and um, so their, their beliefs are consistent with that theory. Of course, there are those who would argue that the Egyptians were of Mediterranean origin. So this, again, lends itself to that, or at least brings about further conversation as to the origins of not only the ancient Egyptian civilization, but potentially the earliest civilizations, because there are those who believe that 15,000, of course, now I've run into those who believe that it was 100 plus thousand years ago that mankind started, and that it could have potentially been in that area. There are those who believe that the Atlantis continent could have been right off of West Africa. And there's, there's a body of thought that between 13, around 13 to 15,000 years ago, there was activity in that area. So again, I don't, uh, I can't say all we're doing is investigating, finding those who are the experts and, and finding more about how the Nomali fit in all of these places. Yeah, that's a really interesting approach. Um, just to sum up, the theory that you had said, not that, you, not that you're necessarily supporting it or anything, it's just information you're conveying, is that some people believe that uh, potentially these Dogon deities descended, the Dogon and the Nomali were um, somewhat involved potentially, and then they migrated to Egypt, started that civilization, and kind of everything spread out from there. Correct? Yes. That the Nomos, which were the Dogon gods, are the same origin as the Nomoli which are the gods of these stones and the gods of West African countries of Sierra Leone. And, uh, and again, the, uh, yeah, and if you follow the, to the next level, the, the creator of Nomos was Ama, A-M-M-A. And in Egyptian uh, deities, the, God, the king of all gods, is Amon, A-M-M-O-N. What's really interesting is if you look them both up, you'll find the slang for both of them is Amen. Hmm. So this is where there's a potential connection linguistically. Yeah, when you start to really look at the etymology of certain words, some of that stuff becomes harder and harder to dispute in some ways, um, unless it's a very convenient coincidence. But then looking at how it all kind of ties together with all of these other, um, all the other evidence, it, it stands for a lot more suitable case. If I'm not mistaken, in like criminal cases, 
there's an amount of evidence where it becomes almost indisputable based upon how many different connections there are. And uh, there's a lot of evidence that kind of would tie that together. Maybe it is convenient coincidences, but it's uh, at the very least, it's incredibly intriguing to consider. Yes, and certainly those areas have not been penetrated by uh, the means that would have identified if there are pyramids long buried in the jungle. Yeah, something about the jungle too to consider with all of that is the fact that all of the decay there would bury stuff at a quicker rate than maybe other areas. So it could very likely be under um, soil or potentially even the climate there could cause erosion on a different scale than maybe um, other areas. That, And it would stand to reason that people didn't go from these massive um, pyramids out of nothing that there would be kind of quite literally steps of building them to get the procedure underway prior to building these massive ones. And if I'm not mistaken, there is some evidence around that in Egypt, but it would stand to reason that there might be other examples of that elsewhere also. Um, yeah, that's really well, this compelling. Is part of the prejudice of the, of the dark continent, the theory that the, there are those, and I just had this conversation with the director of the museum, Doris Lagan, very nice woman, where she's had conversation with Egyptians who feel that Egypt isn't part of Africa. And so there's this whole contention that the rest of Africa is dark, is, uh, was never civilized. And of course, there, you've got your Michael Tellingers and others who believe, again, that 100,000 years ago, there were civilizations there. But that is the myth that's been, we've been fed, I think, for a long time, since Yul Brenner was the pharaoh. And, uh, and so that's a hard, hard to break, that Egypt is a part of Africa, and it's most likely that, that they would have been connected in some way to the ancient, and genealogically they're beginning to, again, uh, prove these things. One thing that kind of probably um, compounds the issue with trying to understand this, and this, this is something that I've heard, I don't know the validity of it, that Egyptian historical society kind of refutes a lot of claims that don't follow their narrative. And that's not unique to them, that's unique to a lot of um, areas of history. But I could see how that might make getting more information difficult. And then when you couple it with them wanting to tell this narrative of not being part of Africa, so on and so forth, that further muddies the waters of getting um, clarity on that. Yeah, there might be a, at least some Egyptians that have a sense that they are, they were the first, is what I understand, and, and that that's important to them. And if, if there's anyone who's challenged that, it could be of, uh, of concern to them. There was a uh, anti-Diop wrote a book, which was an interesting book. One of the professors recently connected me to, and, and other books which have done a lot of research and have, uh, in their opinion, identified that the Egyptians and, and the ancient uh, African from south Chad and, and just over West Africa again towards the Dogon were connected. But that's for greater minds in mind to think. I think the key that this is interesting is that one of the most interesting things is that there are mysteries like this still available to be uncovered. And you don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to be a scientist. You know, me and my son, you are just a couple of guys who got interested in anything. And it says, Doris would say, if you look at art and just observe it, 
it's art. As soon as you ask a question about it, it's education. Mm. And so the process of, of learning and finding out about these things is something, again, that anyone can do. Any of your listeners not only could find some revelation that has been unknown, but they may actually have no Mali somewhere in their collection and not even know it. They could have in a local flea market run across them uh, or some other. If this could still exist, and was, you know, we think that information is ubiquitous, I thought, with the Internet. And again, there's, uh, from that stone show, there was such an enthusiasm about stones and healing and using them for alternative medicines and, and other applications that something like this could exist. It would be so unique and, uh, and just fun to check out and not be known could mean there are many other things just like this that your listeners could uncover in their path. That's an invari- a very inspiring um, thing to say. And I know for me, and I'm sure that you've encountered this on, on your own journey with these stones in particular, the more you begin to explore stuff, the more threads that you pull, the more threads that there become to pull at, and the more that this leads you on this epic quest. Like, um, this is part of my quest is actually doing this show, and now it's led me to talking to you about this, which can lead me down a, a thousand different avenues depending upon what choice I make. Um, so that's a really interesting outlook, and it's important to remember there's still mysteries out there. We don't know everything under the sun. sun. Some things are forgotten. Some things are outside of the peripheral of our consciousness and it's important to be um, mindful and present so we can gain insight from that. Uh, Real quick, you had um, mentioned your website. I'd like you to mention it again so people can see some of these stones, get some more information and check out what you're doing. Yeah, ancientalienstones.com and on there you can see some of the stones. We've made some of the stones from the collection are available and uh, we're going to put them into the hands of people so that they can activate them. And the people who, individuals who have acquired them so far have had profound results. We, I like to think, I like to talk about my friend, Jeff the Shaman down in Bradenton, Florida, in the village. There's a little area of the city that they turned into a village for arts and healing. And Jeff the Village Mystic is his name of his little uh, place there. Really nice, great place, really good energy. He acquired a stone, uh, one of the ones of this collect- this set here. There were a couple of miles over to you. Very undefined, very interesting and ancient looking. And he put it at first with his crystal skulls, which were very valuable, and other stones he had. And, and But he said it told him it wanted to be involved in healings. So he took it off the shrine and began to use it in his healings and used it in many healings and and that's i think what's important is that the stones i mean we did exhibit them for a couple of years at the museum once we found out how rare the collection was and how unknown they were we wanted to put them on exhibit one time so anyone who wanted to could see them and then it's our decision to break them up and put them into people's hands instead of just to be looked at they are stones that are designed to be used. So we have some stones available there. There's also, as I said, a video of the museum exhibit 
which those of you are many people are not in a position to acquire one, but you can look at them and check them out. We did a nice little segment where we put all the stones one after another in there and see if, if, uh, if it can be inspirational or I just think they're very interesting and it's an adventure to find new things like this. So if for no other reason that you've seen something that you haven't seen a thousand times on TV, I am confident that you are bringing this and for whatever reason, you're the one who has seen this and is bringing it to your viewers for the first time. And um, so it's exciting to, to be part of that happening. And, um, I think it's exciting. They're fortunate that you're a guy who uh, who is brave enough to look at new things. And oh, thank you. It's an honor to actually just have this conversation with you and get the opportunity to hear something new. Um, and just to maintain an open mind is something I'm grateful for because I had a closed mind for a very long time, even though I thought it was open. Um, I'm going to put a link to your website in the show notes too. So people can find it super easy. They can get to it um, directly. My next question for you is going to be, you had mentioned that you were working on a book with somebody. Do you have any kind of understanding when that might be coming out? I can't say for sure. Working with uh, Professor Prabhupada Forianza, he was the art professor at Howard University in Washington, D.C. for 37 years. He's retired now and uh, a published author. I, the first book is going to capitalize and, and utilize the images of the, of the stones to draw people in and to really get the image to have the greatest impact so people really want to see them. And, and that's the most powerful thing. Words are nice, what they mean, all that, but the image of the stone is where it's at. So unlike most books that you would see that you would normally want to write a defined book compendium of all the facts you could find, about Nomali and have that be the first real book about him. But we're going to take a different approach and go with this coffee table, large book with the pictures. And then it'll also have some, depending on what's available, a description from the bush of what the stone represents, a description from the, uh, from the art profession. And then if it has been read by a stone reader, a psychic, or a healer, if it's been used by a healer or a psychic, maybe a testimonials. And so that will be the first book. The second is going to be more involved with the uh, going back into the bush and getting further details and also our research that we're going to be continuing in different areas. In fact, uh, we are at this time, so by the time you come out, it's not going to be anything we have to keep under wraps. At this time, we are in the process of of attempting to acquire footage. The first footage that, as far as I know, in existence, now there may be some somewhere in a library in England or something, I don't know, of the use uh, of the existence and location and use of Nomali in the current bush, which again is sensitive because they are not politically correct on the way to get there hmm. until you get deep into the bush is where they would still be actively utilizing them. Yeah, they're, they're kind of culturally taboo, as you had mentioned. So there's kind of the stigma around even probably going through that, which will be an adventure of itself to kind of keep it on the hush as you 
go about making your way there, I imagine. Even more than that, I know that in about a year and a half ago or so, there was a woman who was a trader in the Nomali, and her home caught fire with a lot of Nomali, and she was killed in the fire. And uh, so it's hard to say there wasn't that much wood in the house. Hmm. So it's hard to say it looked like it had been burned out quickly and uh, powerfully. So it's it's hard to say, but there are very serious uh, people who have religious beliefs. And unfortunately, that you know, I think you probably experienced this, they seem to be categorized into two categories. One, people who find God and learn that he wants them to help and love others. And some people who think God wants them to go around and, and smash other people's relics because they're different. And smash other people because they're different. And put the fear of of uh, God or Allah, whichever the case may be, into the those who might not see things their way. It's unfortunate, but um, yes, it's it's uh, you know it would be it would certainly be surreptitious and you know clandestine. Yeah, I definitely don't blame you for that, especially with that whole uh, anecdote of that woman, um, because that's a good thing to point out. People can be very uh, forceful with imposing their belief structures on other people. And historically that's caused most of the problems in our world is that kind of exact behavior. Um, yeah. I just really want to thank you for taking the time to come on. I don't know if you have anything else that you want to mention in closing or. I just want to thank you. You're obviously, as I was saying before we opened up, sometimes I wonder if we choose the stones or the stones choose us. Ross. <laughs> yeah, I'm grateful that they chose our paths to cross and us to have this conversation, Ben. Um, I'd like to ask the guests to kind of take us out with a couple closing words. So the floor is yours and you can end the show. Thank you again. Hey, I'm just grateful and I think everyone out there is too that you're open mind because I, I'm a firm believer that, um, as I say, when God decides how he wants to use, what, what tools he wants to use and how he wants to help people, he doesn't ask me. So I keep my mind open and I look forward to opportunities. And when I find things like this stones and I see a, a power of, of good that is destined to be used, that has been suppressed, and can be part of bringing that to light with people like you on your show here tonight. I just feel more blessed and compelled to continue and not quite sure how I ended up being so lucky to be involved with this. But um, again, grateful for all your viewers to, to listen in and, and let, let your friends know that you found something new and different and, uh, and cool and interesting, enigmatic. I mean, just, just really nice, really nice, something nice that we found. It's, uh, we could, the world can use more nice things, tools to help. Thanks for listening to the show, Phoenix family. Just a reminder, we are fan funded and you can contribute with the link in the show notes. Other ways to support the show include leaving excellent reviews wherever possible, subscribing to our YouTube channel, engaging with our content on social media, sending me an email, or reaching out via voice message through the Anchor app. Your support is greatly appreciated. Much love and synchronicity. Peace.